Thank you, Jamie. Once again, congratulations to all of our graduates uh, on, a, on a well done for those accomplishments. Sounds like Isaac, Isaac uh, gets the Overachiever Award uh, with uh, that uh, uh, double concentration. Way to go, Isaac. Proud of you guys. Um, so we want you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open up to Acts chapter 4 this morning, uh, beginning in verse 32. We're going to be looking at a text there uh, as we continue in this series on being unleashed to be an Acts 1-8 church in an Acts 8-1 world. As you're turning there, one other uh, recognition I want to do this morning is I want to recognize that we have a staff member this morning who is having a birthday. So happy birthday to Miss Debbie Perkle, and uh, we wish you a happy birthday today and wish that the church family could uh, be here to give you a hug and to say happy birthday to you. Um, in this series that we are going through here over the last few weeks, we are talking about how you and I can be disciples of Jesus who are unleashed to fulfill the missional mandate that our Lord Jesus gives us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in a new world reality in which the church has been scattered at least over the last couple of months because of this unforeseen, unwanted global pandemic and all of the accompanying challenges that that has brought. Even this week, we are experiencing again the weight of this Reality. We had uh, plans to have two worship services just like we did last week. We expected that we would have even more of our faith family that would be able to join us this morning. Um, and then all of that was just kind of suddenly stopped on Friday as we said, you know what, it's probably best uh, that we move forward with just a live stream service uh, this morning. So how do we effectively become and be Acts 1-8 disciples in a, in a world where so much of, of, of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ is scattered. How do, we, how do we do church? And how do we do church in such a way that we are disciples who make disciples of Jesus when we have to do those things in times of social distancing? How's, how's, how are gospel conversations to take place when those gospel conversations are over FaceTime or six feet apart? Um, these are all challenging realities that we are experiencing right now. And so we're talking about that, and it's my conviction that to do that, if we're going to be an Acts 1-8 church like what we see in Acts chapter 8-1 when the disciples of Christ are scattered because of the persecution in Jerusalem and they are forced to leave Jerusalem and they begin to go to all of the regions in the Roman world, in Asia Minor, and in, and in Mesopotamia, and all those areas that they begin to go to, uh, they go and they take the message that they have heard of Christ, and they begin to share that with people in these, in these other cities and towns and provinces. And we begin to see, within a couple of decades, we begin to see churches popping up and being planted in areas all around the Roman world. How, how did these disciples do this? Well, it's my conviction that if we're going to do that, we need to see what the early church was there in those first seven chapters of Acts and see some keys of the early church that we can recapture. And so we saw the first week the power of biblical and relational community within the church. And we saw that the gospel creates in the church a spiritual family. And we, we saw that what the gospel does is it takes people from, from all kinds of different backgrounds and it puts us in a spiritual family where we leverage these Christ-centered relationships 
and come together to devote ourselves to sound doctrine, to the apostles' teaching, to devote ourselves to real relational community, such as what we would know as real biblical fellowship, and we devote ourselves to praying together as followers of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 4 in verses 5 through 22, and we saw that another quality of the early church was bold witness, not just biblical community, but bold witness. And we saw through the testimony of Peter and John how the gospel creates a people who are bold in sharing what Christ has done for us. As a matter of fact, as the Peter and John are sharing the gospel and telling people about Jesus, they are brought before men who control their fate, men who, who have the power to sentence them uh, to, to, to be banned from the temple, to be sent to the Romans for potential execution. And, and those men tell Peter and John, you, you need to stop speaking about Jesus. And Peter boldly says, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you or to obey him, obey him you must be the judge, but, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. That's bold witness. And if we're going to be an Acts 1-8 church, we have to be a church that is engaging in bold witness, that are not afraid to speak the truth of the gospel, even in a world where sometimes that truth is not always readily and, and graciously received. And we said uh, that, that from the beginning that one of the truths that we see throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel doesn't just create a religious organization, but the gospel creates a transformed people. What we see happening in Acts chapter 2 and subsequently throughout the rest of the book of Acts is not just that, that people hear a, a spiritual message and that they become adherents to that religious philosophy and, and therefore an institutional organization is created. The gospel doesn't create a religious institutional organization. The gospel creates a transformed people. And the church is a spiritual body composed of spiritually transformed people who are on the journey of becoming more like Christ. That's what the church is. Church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is not a denomination. The church is a spiritual body composed of spiritually transformed people who are all on the journey of becoming more like Christ. And we need to understand that salvation is not simply about getting the fringe benefits of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Salvation is also about being invited into a discipleship journey with Jesus himself. That we are invited by the nature of this new spiritual life into, into entering into a discipleship relationship with the Lord Jesus. The gospel creates disciples. It doesn't create church members. It creates disciples. And it creates disciples who make other disciples by taking the same life-transforming message that they have received and believed and take it to others who need to hear it. And so to do that, we need a sense of biblical community. We need a sense of bold witness. But we also need what we're going to look at today in today's text. We need a sense of radical generosity. And what I want us to see today is that the gospel creates a people who are marked by radical displays of generosity towards one another and to a lost world. Now I want to be clear. 
My purpose today is not to preach another sermon on giving. It's not to somehow or another appeal to people to, to, to give more money to the church. My purpose today is to show us that it's the very nature of the gospel and the very nature, nature of the transformation the gospel brings that one of the side effects of that is that it creates a people who display radical examples of generosity towards one another and towards the lost world. Because you and I have benefited from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, generously given to us through Him, we respond with grace-filled generosity towards others that God puts in our path. And to look at this, I want us to look at Acts chapter 4, and specifically we're going to start with verses 32 through 37. Then we're going to look at a story in Acts chapter 5 right after this in just a second. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see in these five verses is a radical generosity that permeated the early church and the early followers of Jesus Christ such that there was no real strong physical need among any of those early disciples because they so gladly shared what they had with one another. And so I want us to see three truths this morning about the church being unleashed for radical generosity. And the first of those truths is simply this, that the grounds for radical generosity is the gospel. If you know me, that answer should be easy to fill in the blank. The grounds for radical generosity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see in verses 32 through 34 how, how Luke takes time to show us that that the good news of Jesus Christ does not does such a powerful work in this new community of believers that it develops within them a, 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 a transformed community who are dependent upon one another. We see immediately that, that there's, a, there's a deep sense of unity and there's a deep sense of, of community that has developed among the early followers of Jesus. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now this is not some sort of biblical socialism here, but what it means is that, that there was no sense of greed or no sense of selfishness that existed among these early followers of Jesus. To understand this, let's, let's just review the context of Acts and where we are in the narrative for just a moment. The number of disciples grew from about 120 followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 instantaneously in Acts chapter 2 to over 3,000. Then, because Peter and John healed a man, and, or God healed a man through them, and Peter was given a platform to preach the gospel again, many more believed so that by the end of Acts chapter 3, the number of 
disciples and followers of Jesus in Jerusalem now numbers over 5,000. So 5,000 new converts to the Christian faith within just a few short weeks probably. And, and now these new these, this church, this gathering, now compo- is composed of thousands of new converts and new disciples from provinces all over the Roman world who need to be discipled. As a matter of fact, some of these Christians were looking for places to stay. Many of them had, had left their home where they lived to go to Jerusalem simply to celebrate, celebrate the festivals, maybe to celebrate the festival of Passover or Pentecost. But while they were there, they heard the gospel and they saw the powerful movement of God among these followers of Jesus Christ. And they believed that message and they felt this instantaneous need to stay in Jerusalem longer. But many of them had not come prepared to stay for weeks or months at a time. And they needed places to stay. Some of them needed ways to to earn income. Some of them needed to find food to feed their families. And so immediately what we see is that the movement of God among these people creates a personal and financial strain on some of these new disciples and even a strain on the early church. And what we see displayed in Acts is really this truth. And I want you to catch her this this morning. We cannot completely accomplish the Great Commission and reach the world for Christ without radical displays of sacrificial generosity on the part of disciples of Jesus. Let me say that again. We cannot completely accomplish the great commission and to reach the world for Christ apart from radical displays of sacrificial generosity among the disciples of Jesus. If we as a church are going to be faithful to the Acts 1-8 mandate of our Lord Jesus to be disciples and to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that fulfilling of that, being obedient to that mission will come at the cost of great sacrifice. Missions is expensive. Taking the gospel around the world is expensive. Meeting the physical and spiritual needs of people are expensive. Evangelism is costly, both personal and financially. And unfortunately, I've been in church work for over 30 years now, and one of the things that I've observed is that too many churches in our days are more concerned with spending money in order to try to appease and entertain those inside the church instead of trying to reach those outside of the church. If you look at the budgets of most churches, you will find that the vast majority of money is spent outside of staff and facility needs. The vast majority of money is usually spent on ministries that take place within the walls of the church. And yet God didn't call us to create exciting programs and entertain Christians. God called us to go and be disciples who make disciples. And we need to be obedient to that. When we give to missions, when we sacrifice to take the gospel outside of the walls of the church to unreached people groups and to people who don't know Christ within our own community, when we do that, we are literally laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And missions cannot be accomplished apart from radical generosity. And the grounds for radical generosity is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. The grounds for the kind of generosity that the Holy Spirit calls us to is what Christ has done for us on the cross to sacrifice Himself to purchase our redemption. And the generosity displayed by the Lord Jesus to generously and graciously give up everything in order to save us causes us to respond as disciples with sacrificial generosity to reach others with that same good news. I love the way that Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The grounds for radical generosity is not an appeal to, to our finances. The grounds for radical generosity is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The most radical demonstration of generosity ever displayed was not displayed by Bill Gates or some other philanthropist. The most radical display of generosity ever was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one paid a higher price to see and secure the salvation of the world than the Lord Jesus Himself. And it's, that's why when we look to the cross and on which Jesus died, we respond by saying that Jesus paid it all and all to him we instinctively owe. I want us to see how the gospel creates radical generosity in his people by looking at two truths that are in your notes. The first of those is that the gospel unites us to a new spiritual family. The gospel unites us to a new spiritual family. We've already touched on this a couple of times in this series. But Luke says here in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This, this idea of the full number of those who believed, this, this means all of those who were disciples of Jesus, over 5,000 at this particular point. And yet there is great unity such that, that Luke says with 5,000 people from different various socioeconomic backgrounds, from dozens of different locales and provinces, that all of these people were in great unity with one another. And Luke says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Think about that statement for a second. When people came together as disciples of Jesus in the book of Acts, they didn't come together with the pretentiousness of these things that they owned that, that were symbols of, of their wealth, of their status. They, they came together as one unified spiritual family to the point that there was, there was no selfishness on the part of, of, of the early disciples of Jesus. There was no greed. There was no sense of entitlement. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen selfishness displayed in the church before? You ever been in the church and, and been around other Christians and seen a Christian who was selfish or a group of Christians who were selfish in things that they said with regards to things that they felt entitled to or things that they felt belonged to them? I know I have. I've heard statements like, we cannot possibly give up our Sunday school room. We've been in this Sunday school room for 20 years and we cannot possibly give up this room. Or, this is the seat that my family has sat in for the last 40 years and we're going to continue to sit in this seat. 
Or maybe something like, my family gave up a lot of money to build this church building and I'm not going to let it be ruined by bringing in the wrong kind of people in here. You may think nobody's ever said that before. I've heard that statement myself. We can't just go around giving handouts to people all the time. If they need to pay the bills, they need to get a job. We have other things that we need to do with our money. Unfortunately, sometimes in, in our day, disciples of Jesus aren't always known for radical generosity. Sometimes we're known for entitlement and selfishness. And this is not the gospel. This is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel unites us to a new spiritual family where everyone who is a follower of Jesus is a brother or sister in Christ. And when you see a brother or sister in your family who has needs, it changes your approach to them. It's one thing when you see someone out on the street who is holding a sign who says that they are hungry and that they need food. It's one thing to bypass that person. It's another thing when you drive by and it's your son who's holding the sign. Or it's your brother that's holding that sign. When you see people who are spiritual family, it changes your approach to them. And so the gospel unites us to a new spiritual family. But secondly, the gospel fuels us to be visible agents of the grace of God, to be visible agents of grace. Luke says at the end of verse 33 that there was great grace upon all of them. Now the word grace in one sense in the Bible means the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. It's the unmerited and undeserved favor that God gives towards sinners in order to redeem them. That's one way that the word grace is used. But another way that the word grace is used is the demonstration of God's favor among His people. And in this particular case, the shared experience of the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus was manifested among God's people in a visible way in how they cared for one another in the church. There was not only this sense of redeeming, saving grace that existed over them, but that grace was visibly manifested in the way that they related to one another. They related to one another as people of grace. Great grace existed among them. And the gospel, when it's, when it's saturated within a church, when it's saturated within a people, it fuels us to be visible agents of grace. Which brings us really to kind of the second truth, and that is the demonstration of radical generosity and the demonstration of radical generosity is simply personal sacrifice. The way that we demonstrate radical generosity is through personal sacrifice. Verse 34 and 30 through 37 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as each had need. We see sacrificial generosity there. And then it's illustrated in the story of a man named Barnabas, who it says here was a Levite, also a man who was from Cyprus. And it says in verse 37 that Barnabas had a field, that he sold that field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see here is simply this, that generosity is not an abstract concept. Generosity is not a philosophical thing, it's a tangible thing. Generosity is not something that you can talk about and study, it's something that must be visibly demonstrated. 
And here Luke shows us visibly and tangibly how the church practiced radical generosity. It would have been one thing for Luke simply to say that, that, that the early church were people who were very generous with their goods, but, but you can't really understand generosity by reading words. You have to see it in action, and Luke shows it how it was demonstrated in action here. That the early church sacrificed their personal possessions to meet the needs of one another. And there were, these were people, some of whom who had worked hard for many years, and their hard work had paid off with, with personal prosperity. Some of them, like, like um, Barnabas here, had enough money to purchase a plot of land. And, and maybe at some point in time, Barnabas had plans for that land. Maybe he, maybe he planned to build a family home there. Maybe he planned to plant some sort of, some sort of business venture there that would bring him more prosperity. But, but he owned this land, and when he saw the needs of people around him, when he saw that there were people within his own faith fellowship who were struggling with, with where to get food and struggling with, with where to find lodging over their head, he went and took that land, sold it, and gave all of the money to the apostles and said, distribute it to anyone as they have need. The example of the early church and of Barnabas powerfully demonstrates a critical truth that the 21st, evangelical, 21st century evangelical church needs to hear. And that truth is in your notes. It's simply this. The nature of the gospel is not personal fulfillment, but self-sacrifice. If anything, Acts chapter 4 shows us, it is that the nature of gospel transformation is that the gospel is not about our personal fulfillment. The gospel is a call to self-sacrifice. The gospel is not just about securing for you a personal reservation in glory and then trying to provide for you your best life now here in the meantime. The gospel is not about using your faith in Jesus as a secret sauce to greater personal fulfillment and prosperity. That is an abhorrent perversion of the gospel that we have allowed to populate in evangelical churches today. The gospel is not a call to self-fulfillment. The gospel is a call to self-sacrifice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ bids a man, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and to die. And Jesus said, if anyone wanted to follow him, they must first deny themselves and pick up the instrument of their own execution. And only then would they be willing and able to follow him. And Paul said that to be in union with the Lord Jesus meant to be crucified with Christ, that I no longer live. The gospel is not a call to personal fulfillment. The gospel is a call to self-sacrifice. And Nowhere is our understanding of the gospel more evident than our attitude towards our possessions. Nowhere is our understanding of the gospel more evident to the world than in our attitude and our view of our possessions. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, not to measure our lives or our treasure by earthly accumulations, because one day all of the things that you and I have will somehow turn to rust or to dust. But instead, we are to measure our, our treasure in the things that glorify Jesus and in the people that need to hear about Him. This is the example that Barnabas provides for us. He even tells us that Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. 
You see, the grace of God had transformed Barnabas from Joseph into the son of encouragement because he was always living his life in such a way that encouraged others to follow Jesus. You'll remember the story of Barnabas, that Barnabas is really the first person to take a chance on Saul after Saul's conversion, to take Saul under his wings and to introduce him to the apostles and to, and to vouch for him and to verify for him. And Barnabas's entire life is one lived of visible evidences of encouragement to others around him. Which brings us really to the second point of, of here, which is the gospel transforms the way that we view our possessions not as vehicles to serve us, but as conduits to serve others. Let me say that again. The gospel calls us to personal sacrifice because the gospel transforms the way that we see our possessions, that we no longer see them as vehicles that exist to serve us, but as conduits that God has given us to serve others. The gospel calls us, as followers of Jesus, to live with an open hand. You know, when it comes to the things that you own, you can either live with a closed fist or an open hand. You can either say, these things are mine, I've worked hard for them, I'm going to enjoy them, these things exist for me, and no one is going to take these things away from me. Or you can live with an open hand that says, Father, every single thing that I have, you've gifted to me. They belong to you, and they're to be used for your glory. And I'm going to live with an open hand with regards to my possessions, and I want to live a life of, of generosity towards those that you place in our path. You and I cannot close our fist around our possessions and demonstrate grace to others at the same time. It's impossible. And so you and I need to learn to see our homes not as personal castles instead, but as missional outposts. Missional outpost where we can invite a lost and broken world inside and show them hospitality and grace. We need to see our worship auditoriums not as cathedrals for the saved, but as lighthouses for the lost. And we need to see giving to the church not as a religious obligation that we are to fulfill, but as a divine opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. You see, when we fully understand the gospel, it changes the way that we view our possessions. And we will not fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime if we spend most of our time looking for affordable and convenient ways to do missions and evangelism. We will not accomplish the Great Commission. We will not be obedient to the mandate of our Lord Jesus if we spend most of our time in our churches trying to find affordable, cost-efficient, and effective or convenient ways to do missions and evangelism. I'm so grateful that one of the, the testimonies of Central Park Baptist Church for many years has been the radical display of generosity and sacrifice that people have made in regards to missions and evangelism in this church that we celebrate every year during our harvest offering. I can even remember in a different church that I served at at one time how this was visibly demonstrated. And we would lead the membership class in that church. And when we did, we always brought in one of the charter members of the church to tell the story of how the church got started. And that church was forming and being planted in that, in that place. And as they were, there was a building that was for sale. And they wanted to buy the building, but the, 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 the people who were starting the church were, were very small and 
They didn't have any money up front, so they did a capital campaign in order to try to buy the building. And they only had about six weeks to try to come up with the money that they needed. It was a couple of hundred thousand dollars to buy the building. And they only had about six weeks to make this happen. So they just asked people to pray and to do whatever the Lord would have them to do. And every time we would go through this part of the membership class, the charter member who would tell the story would begin to tear up because he would talk about being there and seeing people, a, a particular person who had just bought a brand new bass boat who drove up, dropped the trailer and the bass boat off and said, sell it and give it all to the building fund. He talked about women who had taken their wedding rings and given them to the church in order for the church to pawn them and to take the proceeds in order to plant this church. That's what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to live with open hands regarding our possessions. But then I want us to see a different part of this story, which is in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I want us to see what I call the antithesis to radical generosity, which is self-centered hypocrisy. We see in Barnabas and the early believers in the latter part of chapter 4, radical generosity, but we see in Acts chapter 5, a story of self-centered hypocrisy. I'll read it for you. It says, There was a man named Annas who with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie with the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, the price that Ananias said that they had sold it for. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. Now the story of Ananias and Sapphira can really stand alone as a sermon in itself of a tragic tale and a critical warning to those who would lie to the Holy Spirit. But I believe that Luke strategically places this story immediately following the story of Barnabas for a reason. Because Barnabas is an example of radical gospel generosity and Ananias is an example of personal hypocrisy. Now granted, reading through this story brings a ton of difficult questions that many of us wrestle with. Things like, isn't the death of Ananias a little harsh for the crime? Or was something good accomplished by killing them? Were Ananias and Sapphira actually even Christians to begin with? And if so, does this mean that God would kill Christians for lying? I don't have time to answer all of these real and challenging questions right now. And this sermon isn't really the forum for that today. But let me summarize it by saying this. That ours is not a position to sit in judgment over the Holy Spirit for the ways that He moves. And it is not incumbent upon us to question the fairness of God in some matters. 
But instead, we need to see this story for what it is, and that is a dire warning against greed and spiritual hypocrisy. The reason why the Holy Spirit gives us this account, and one of the reasons why I appreciate that this account is here, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just cover over the sins of the church, but he, he shows us the sins of the church in their full glory as a dire warning for those who would venture down the path of hypocrisy and greed. And I put this in your notes here, that the story of Ananias displays for us this truth, that we cannot be a generous person and a greedy person at the same time. We cannot be a generous person and a greedy person at the same time. And when you read the story of Ananias, it becomes very clear that Ananias was a greedy person. You'd think maybe not because he did like Barnabas. He took his land and he sold it and he brought the money to the church. And doesn't that seem like a generous offer? But when you understand the story, you understand that Ananias was not trying to do this as an example of generosity. Instead, Ananias was greedy for attention and praise from other people. He saw the attention that Barnabas got from, from selling this property. He saw that many people thanked Barnabas for his generosity and said, man, that Barnabas is a, man, he's a true follower of Jesus. Man, what a, what a radical gift of sacrifice on his part. And, and, and Ananias wanted some of that attention as well. And so as a person of means, he said, you know what, I'll take this property and I'll, I'll sell it and I'll, I'll give the money to the, to the church as well. I won't give all of it, but I'll tell them that I did. I'll tell them that I sold it for this, when in reality I sold it for about half of that or about two-thirds of that, and I'm going to keep a little bit back for myself because I want to be a wise investor, and I don't want to give up everything from this property. And yet he comes and makes a pretense and says that he sold it for something that was different than what he actually did. And he did it because he wanted the fame and the praise of other people. Ananias was a greedy person, and the greed served as the soil in which his sin fermented and grew in his heart. Ananias wanted to pretend to be a disciple of Jesus. He wanted the praise that generosity brings without the sacrifice that generosity demands. And in my opinion, Ananias is a perfect example of a spiritual imposter. He's a perfect example of the warning that Jesus gave us in the parable of the wheat and the tares that the enemy will sow imposters into the church. And it's interesting to note that the Holy Spirit doesn't kill Ananias for not giving all of the money. Some of us would say, well, why does he kill him for not giving all the money? He doesn't kill him for not giving all the money. Peter says as much when he says, wasn't it your property? You could have sold it for whatever you wanted, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias lost his life because he was a hypocrite who tried to lie to the Spirit of God, who tried to pretend something was true before God that wasn't true. And this reminds us of another truth that's in your notes, which is the greatest threat to the mission of the church is not the sin outside the church, but oftentimes the sin inside the pews. The greatest threat to being an Acts 1-8 church is not the sin that exists in our world. I hear Christians all the time talk about how bad our world is getting and how much sin seems to reign in our world. But the reality of it is, is this world has been this way ever since Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the garden. This world has always been, since that moment, a place of sin and brokenness and corruption. 
And we're not even near to the point of corruption that God saw in Genesis before it, when it grieved him so much that he destroyed the entire world by flood. This world has always been a broken, sinful place and the problem with accomplishing the mission of the church is not the sinners outside of the church. Oftentimes it's the sinners inside the church. And the greatest threat to reaching the world for Christ is the unredeemed people in the pews of churches who hypocritically try to act like saved people. And this problem of hypocrisy comes whenever a church lacks clarity about what the gospel actually is. The gospel is not simply a spiritual truth that you believe that ensures that you get a ticket to heaven one day. The gospel is a call to give up everything you are for everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has done for you. And understand this, when hypocrisy in the church goes unchecked, gospel witness will always suffer. I can remember dozens and dozens and dozens of stories, even from people in my own personal family, who for years and years and years would not hear the gospel and trust in it simply because of the hypocrisy that they saw from those who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just three happy hops into heaven. It is fully and completely giving your life to the one who died on the cross to fully pay your sins. And hypocrisy is the antithesis of the gospel because it seeks to build our faith on what we want others to believe about us rather than what Christ has done for us. And it places the burden of our salvation in what we do and how good we are rather than how good Christ is. We see right away these extremes between the radical generosity of Barnabas and the self-centered hypocrisy of Ananias. And it reminds us that it is impossible to be a spiritually generous person and a a hypocritical, greedy person at the same time. When greed controls our hearts, it is evident that the gospel does not. The gospel never creates greedy hypocrites. Religion creates greedy hypocrites. Religion creates people who grade on a spiritual scorecard. It creates people who are always trying to measure themselves against others. The gospel, in contrast, creates transformed people. People who have experienced the generosity and grace of Christ and as a result, respond with grace-fueled generosity towards others. So in closing, let me ask you this question. What would it mean in your life for you to live with an open hand? What would it mean in your life for you to open your hands regarding all of the things that you own, all of the things that God has blessed you with, and to say, God, I want you to use any and everything that I have for the purpose of advancing the mission and the kingdom of God wherever it needs to go? How does God call you to use your resources to best meet the deep physical and spiritual needs of others around us. The reality of it is, is that God has blessed us in the American Evangelical Church in immeasurable ways. And by most standards, the people who are occupying church pews this morning and the people who are watching church broadcast on YouTube this morning, by most standards, we are the wealthiest people in the world. And the Bible tells us that God said, to whom much has been given, much will be required. 
When God blesses us, the blessing is never for us. It's always for someone else. Now, one of the ways that we're going to do this is that we said early this year that we wanted to be a church that really sought to seek the city of Decatur and, and help out in ways that we can. And some of those have been, some of those missional ways have been really hindered over the last several weeks as, as we've been kind of forced to quarantine in our homes and we haven't been able to, to get out much. We have to keep social distancing and all kinds of things. But one of the things that we did was this week we contacted three local agencies here in um, Decatur and asked, these are agencies that we partner with that help to provide food and clothing and other things for people within our community. And we asked them, what are some things that you need? What are some ways that we can help you accomplish the mission of serving others? And so they've given us a list of those things. And many of you would have gotten an email this week or you'll see this logo, this graphic on our Facebook page. And it, it tells you here that there are several items that, that these organizations need. Things like individually wrapped snacks, canned items, paper towels, deodorant, toothbrushes, toothpaste, travel size, shampoo, razors, etc. We're asking you this week or over the course of the next couple of weeks to go out when you go to the grocery store and buy some of these items and set them aside and bring them to the church and we will collect them and take them to these organizations and distribute them. That's one way that we can help to show generosity and to seek the welfare of our city. Now, this coming Thursday, uh, the 28th, we are going to have a drive through drop-off here at the church at the Outback. And so you can come anytime between 5 and 7 o'clock and some of our mission team members and staff will be there. We'll probably try to do a Facebook Live from there as well. And we want you to just come by and drive up and drop your items off. You may want to park and come in and, and say hello to some people. It may be an opportunity for some of us to experience some fellowship that we haven't been able to do over the course of the last eight weeks. If you can't come Thursday, that's fine. You can bring it on Sunday morning or, well, you can't bring it on Sunday morning this week, but you can bring it uh, to the church office during office hours and we'll be glad to take them then as well. Or you can call us and we'll come by your house and pick it up. But it's another way for us to show generosity this morning. In closing, I want to just return to what I said earlier, which is that the grounds for radical generosity is not just an appeal for us to use our resources in a wise manner. The grounds for radical generosity is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That we believe in a, in a God and in a Savior who, though he were rich, for our sake became poor so that we might become rich in him. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so maybe this morning you're watching, you're listening to this, and, and maybe the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that, that you've been a spiritual hypocrite, that, that maybe you're a lot more like Ananias than you are Barnabas. And maybe you've been pretending to be a Christian. Maybe you've been going through the religious motions, but the reality of it is, is that you do not belong to God and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. And so if you're watching this broadcast today and the Holy Spirit's been working and dealing with you and has revealed to you that you need the Lord Jesus, or maybe, maybe you just have a sense, of, uh, sense in your spirit that something's not right and you need to talk to somebody, you can see on the screen there my number, or there's my cell phone number, my email address. Please contact me and I would be honored to talk to you a little bit more. I'm going to close today in a word of prayer. And again, we thank you for joining us for this message. And we will be doing another live stream next Sunday. And we invite you to join us then as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the radical generosity that was displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ for us on the cross. 
God, may we as followers of you be men and women who live with open hands. May we be people whose sole purpose in life is to display the very same generosity towards others that you displayed towards us. Give us wisdom and how to know how to use our possessions, the money and and our homes and the things that we have and the things that we own as tools and vehicles to serve others, not just as uh, vehicles to serve us. God, speak to us and, and show us how we can be people who do even more than we've ever done before to make sure that the mission of Christ reaches every person who needs to hear. And for any person that's watching today who is not a follower of you, who's, who's never trusted you with their, with their life, who's never received you as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray you would speak to them in a very real and a very tangible way today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next Sunday. and We hope you have a great week.